So I just want to start just with prayer. Because I, I, I think, you know, last week's message we needed to know and we need to hear as individuals, as people. But today's message as a, as a congregation, as a family, as a church body is so, so critical. And I just want to pray just that God will move this morning, that we understand what he's teaching us, because it is so critical that we know this. So, Father God, we come before you now, and I just thank you so much, Lord, for your, uh, just for your gift of the Holy Spirit, just for his works, just for your presence, Lord, that you've already demonstrated this morning, Lord, to me personally three times, Lord, and to our congregation as a family, Lord. I pray that we will learn this message. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll come down in might and strength and power. Just drench us with this message, Lord, so that we can be the family of God, Lord, so that we know what it means to forgive each other, Lord. Just pray that you'll be with us this morning. In your name, amen. So like I said, last week we looked at sin, and we looked at our own sin, and we looked at the fact that we need to repent, and that we need to uh, confess our sins, and God is faithful. God forgives our sins, and he gives us the joy of his salvation. So this week what we want to do is we want to look at how do we, so that's how we respond to our sin. This week we want to look at how to respond to other people's sin after they have repented. And again, this is so, so critically important. And so we want to be very, very focused this week, and we just want to answer one specific question. And that is, what do you do when someone in the church sins? And like David repents, like David confesses his sins, like David receives forgiveness from Christ, what do we do with someone who has repented? What do we do after they have been forgiven? Because what's our normal reaction? What do we normally do when someone has been involved in this sin? And they're in the church and they come, and they come back and they've repented. Do you treat them differently than you did before that sin? Do you avoid them? Do you shun them? Right? Because we're going to have David's in our midst. It's not a question. It's just a fact. People will sin. People will repent. There will be a restoration process after that. We're going to have people like the Apostle Peter in our church who denied Christ, who denied that he knew Christ, completely denied him, and then repented and was forgiven. And we want to know what do we do with these people. So, should we welcome them back? Should we forgive them? Should we comfort them? Should we comfort someone who's gone through this? Should we love them? Our text today tells us that we should. So let's look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It says this. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. 
Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. So a little bit of the background right here. Now, in this case, we don't know exactly who Paul is referring to, who this person is. Some of the commentators say it was the person from 1 Corinthians who was caught in a sin and that they uh, used church discipline. Some of the commentaries say, well, no, that's probably not it. It's probably someone who is opposing Paul and who is against Paul and who is undermining Paul. So we don't know which one it is. It could be either one. It doesn't really matter which one it is. But we do know this. The person's sin and church discipline took place because it says this punishment by the majority is enough. And as you look through Matthew 18, you look through the, look through the, through the uh, church discipline, that's, that's part of the church discipline. But something happened, and uh, the church disciplined this person. And the church began the discipline the right way that Paul had taught him. And they began the discipline the right way, the same way that Jesus taught him in Matthew 18. But it looks like the Corinthians only got it half right. They knew how to begin the discipline, but they didn't know how to finish the discipline. And so this isn't a time that we're going to get into what church discipline is and what church discipline isn't. But because we're bringing it up, and this is the context of the church, we have an overhead for this. I just want to look down some of the reasons for church discipline. All we're going to do is just kind kind of list them and not spend any time on there. But there's four main reasons for church discipline. The first one is to restore the believer to right behavior. We have a person who's sinning, and we want them to repent and to stop sinning. The next one is to reconcile relationships. These relationships are either between believer and believer or believer and God. But reconciliation is one of the reasons for church discipline. The other one is to keep others from sinning. If we condone sin and let sin happen and don't make a stand and do anything, others will assume it's fine and they will follow in along with the sin. The fourth thing is to maintain the purity and the witness of the church. Because we've seen so many times where people say, I don't want to go to church, right? They're just a bunch of hypocrites. And so this is one of the reasons why that takes place. But the big goal in discipline is to restore the believer. We want them back. And that's one of the biggest reasons for church discipline. So this is the context that this takes place. And one of the ways that this church discipline works is to help the person to see their sin. So remember last week when we looked at David, and David didn't appear to see his sin, and God brings up Nathan, and he shows him his sin. This is what it is. He takes other people. And so in this way, oftentimes church discipline is a way that we show the person what their sin is so that they can repent, and so that restoration does follow. Once again, the whole, one of the main reasons for church discipline is to restore the believer to the fellowship. And so that's this context. But this morning, we don't want to only limit this to church discipline. But we want to look at everybody who has sinned. And we want to take in all of this, and we want to look at this stuff, not just church discipline, but just anyone who has gone through in sin. So we have in the Bible, we have this picture of Peter. And Phil's already kind of mentioned Peter, so we're already kind of thinking about who Peter is. And in there, we have this sin of Peter's denying Christ, and we have Christ's response to that. Peter's one of the 12 disciples, and right before Jesus is arrested, right before he's to be taken away, he tells Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times, and Peter denies that he's going to deny Jesus. 
And he says that he's not only he's not going to die, but he says, I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to, go to, I'm ready to die with you, but I will not deny you. But when things got rough, Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus forgave him. So in this passage right here, as we look at the Second Corinthians, and we start looking at it in verses uh, 5 through 6, we see that the person that we're talking about has confessed. This person has repented. God has forgiven them because Paul's statement is, the punishment is enough. It's enough. It's finished. It's done what it has designed to do. So last week, we looked at those six arrows of repentance right towards sin in other people. This week, what we want to do is we want to look at seven arrows of um, forgiving others. Because this is going to help us to turn from unforgiving to forgiving. So what we want to do is we want to picture ourselves as archers, right? And we have this quiver, and we're shooting at this bullseye, and we have these arrows that we're shooting at. My son Ben is working at scout camp this summer. He's been there all summer long. He's got another... Uh, half a week to go, I think, and uh, he's teaching archery to scouts. So as of last week when I talked to him, he said he'd already taught between 600 and 800 scouts how to shoot a bow and arrow. And so that's his, that's his job this summer, so he loves it. The course record, or the, the, the perfect score in the range that he is is a 50. That's the perfect score at his, at his range. No one has gotten a perfect score. The camp record is 49. As of last week, Ben had a 48 and was still trying for the camp record. So no one is, is perfect. And it's going to be the same with us when we shoot these arrows of repentance at, at either sin, repentance towards us, or forgiving others. But we want to get as close as we can, right? We're shooting for that 50. The camp record's a 49. Our record's a 48. We're just going to keep on trying and trying and trying. So what are the six arrows of forgiving others? Arrow number one. And these are in your bulletin insert here. We need to recognize the danger of excessive sorrow. Because remember David last week in Psalm 51 said, My sin is always before me. My bones are broken. We feel this sin. And we feel this weight. And someone who has gone through this oftentimes feels additional weight to that. So on top of that weight, oftentimes are added the weight of the people that are your closest friends turning their backs on you because of what you've done. On top of that is the weight of the people who are Christians not talking to you. The ones who also sin, pretending that you're not in the same room. The ones who should be caring for you often end up shunning you as well. And this sorrow that goes along with that becomes unbearable. And there's this danger in excessive sorrow. And Paul is warning us about this excessive sorrow. We have an overhead. Richard Pratt, in his commentary on Corinthians, says this. He says, Sorrow should not always be avoided. In fact, it often leads to repentance. But even so, once repentance has occurred, a serious danger lurks for those who are not restored to good standing in the church. They run the risk of too much sorrow. And discouragement of this sort may actually lead the weakened believer into worse sin. Therefore, Paul urged the Corinthians to reaffirm their love for the, dis for the disciplined man. This is a very real possibility that we may actually 
by not forgiving them, by not restoring them, lead them into greater sin. We need to reaffirm our love for them. Right? Because people deal with sorrow different ways. And sometimes it's internalized, right? We internalize it. We bottle it up. Other times it's external. We, we, uh, we spew it out instead of bottling up. It just, it just goes out, right? When we internalize it, it leads to depression and it leads to despondency. And it leads to isolation. And if this sorrow becomes too great, we just don't want to go to church. We don't want to go back. It's, it's just too much to go back to church. If we externalize it, this leads to anger. This leads to hatred. This leads to statements like, I am never, ever going back to that place again. I will not go back to that church. And that's that externalization of that sorrow which turns that way. Both of these responses have the potential to drive us out of the church. But God has made us a part of the church. God has made us a body. God has made us this family. And that danger is that they're overwhelmed by this excessive sorrow. And this will happen. But we, we need to, um, or they can't stay in that state of isolation, right? And Paul is saying if we don't forgive them, if we don't comfort them, if we don't love them after the sin has been repented of, then we're contributing to this sorrow and the outcome of that sorrow. So think about Peter and just his position, right? Jesus tells him, you're going to deny knowing me three different times. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three different times. Peter doesn't believe it. He denies that he's going to deny him. But he goes out, and in the chaos of everything that's going on, and in the chaos of Jesus being caught, and it's the middle of the night, and there's guards that are running all over, and he's in this very real position that he will get caught, that he will get tortured, that he will get killed as well. And out of this fear, he denies Jesus. And as the night wears on, he denies Jesus again. And as the night turns into morning, he denies Jesus a third time. And he hears this rooster crow. And he turns to look, and he sees Jesus. Jesus is looking in his eyes. And Peter wept. Peter broke down, and he wept. Peter knew his sin then. He didn't need church discipline to reveal his sin. He knew it instantly. But he's in this danger of this excessive sorrow now because he sees Jesus one-on-one after he has sinned. So that's the first arrow, that we need to recognize this danger of excessive sorrow. And we need to be on the lookout for people that we've known who've gone through this if they are in that sorrowful state as well. Arrow number two. We need to forgive them. We need to forgive them. So this is obviously not the same forgiveness that God offers. We cannot create clean hearts or new spirits. We can't give them the joy of their salvation. But God does call us to forgive them. So we have to ask, what does it mean to forgive and this is in your uh, bulletin to take home, and we have an overhead for this. There's a guy named Ken Sandy, wrote a series of books. They all have the word peacemaker in there. This one's taken out of the book, Peacemaking for Family. And he just describes what forgiveness is and what it isn't. And he just does an excellent job. And so I just want to go ahead and, uh, and look what he says, because he does it so well. And this is, first of all, what forgiveness is not. He says, forgiveness is not a feeling. It is not like love or hate or jealousy, envy or lust. 
To be sure, deciding to forgive can eventually change our feelings tremendously, but that comes later, after we've made the conscious decision to forgive. Forgiveness is not forgetting. God doesn't forget our sins when he forgives them. He decides not to remember them, not to mention them, recount or think of them again, not to hold them against us in the final ledger. Similarly, when we forgive, we must consciously try not to think or talk about what others have done to hurt us. Forgiveness is not excusing. We do not simply sweep the behavior under the rug when we forgive sin and in effect saying, oh, you really didn't do anything wrong. You couldn't help it. On the contrary, the fact that we forgive indicates that a sin was committed. So that's what forgiveness is not. It's not a feeling or forgetting or excusing. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is an act of the will, a decision not to think or talk about what someone has done. It is an active process involving a conscious choice and a deliberate course of action. It is the canceling of a debt that is incurred because of improper behavior or words. And just as God's forgiveness of us breaks down the wall that we erected between him and us by our sin, our forgiveness of the other person opens the way for renewed relationship with him. It brings us back together after an offense has separated us from each other. Ken Say Anything gives us four promises for a way that we can put this into action, an easier way to kind of understand what he said. The four promises are, I will not think about this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident, and I will not allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship. We need to forgive the person who has sinned. Christ has forgiven them. They have repented. We also need to forgive them. Because at the core of the gospel, the very core of the gospel is that Jesus forgives us of our sins. And so, if we don't forgive each other of the sins, we can't be a gospel-centered church. If we don't forgive other people of their sins, we cannot thrive as a church. If we don't forgive other people of their sins, we cannot be a healthy church. Jesus Christ forgave Peter for denying him three times for what he did. It just as we look at the different sins, doesn't it seem like denying Jesus would be the greatest sin, right? Because in order to be saved, we need to believe in him. And so it seems like denying him would be the, the opposite. But Jesus forgave Peter. Now, we don't have the actual account of the, of the moment, but we have the evidence of it. Because when the, when the three women go to the tomb, they get there, and Jesus is already gone. And there's an angel there, and the angel tells him, go and tell the disciples and tell Peter that he's been, rose, or he's been risen from, how do you say it, rose from the dead, risen from the dead? <laughs> he's, he's not dead anymore, right? They say, look, go tell the disciples, go tell Peter he is no longer dead. Jesus puts Peter in that name. That shows that he forgave Peter. Why? Because he didn't say, go tell the Pharisees. Go tell those people who didn't believe. Go tell those people who thought I was lying the whole time. Go tell them. Look what happened. No, he doesn't say that. He says, go tell those people who believed so they can rejoice. Go tell the disciples and especially tell Peter. Peter's among these ones. This is, this is his forgiveness. And we see this evidence that God forgave Peter. Arrow number three, we need to comfort them. We need to comfort them. Our natural response oftentimes after someone has sinned like this is to not talk to them, 
And Paul is saying not only do we, not, do we talk to them, but we comfort them. We comfort them after they've gone through this sin, after they've repented, after they've been forgiven as part of this restoration process. We don't need to explain what comfort is. right? We all know what comfort is. And we know what it's like to have that comfort. We know what it's like to not have that comfort. And we know what it's like to withhold that comfort from someone. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Arrow number four. We need to reaffirm our love for them. We need to reaffirm our love for them. This piece, this reaffirming of their love is so critical that we do. Right? Because we loved them once. We loved them before they sinned. We loved them before they fell. And we need to love them again. Remember David's cry in Psalm 50 when he says, Have mercy on me. Cast me not away from your presence. Let me hear joy and gladness. And this is their cry with us, too. This is their cry with us. And so after David's confession, God forgives his sins. And that relationship was restored. And he did this with a willing spirit. The proof was that he gave David the joy of his salvation. In other words, God reaffirmed his love for David. And we're to do the same. We're to forgive each other's sins. We're to restore that relationship. We're to do it with a willing spirit. And the proof that we have truly forgiven our brother or our sister is that we reaffirm our love for them. Listen to this story. You've got to put yourself into Peter's position when we do this, right? Peter denies Christ. Last thing when he sees Christ face to face, eye to eye, is him denying Christ. Christ looking at him, denying him. That's the last he saw. Christ dies. And so Peter doesn't know what to do. And there, him and the disciples are just sitting around. And Peter says, ah, I'm going to go fishing. And the others are like, well, all right, we'll go with you too. Like there's nothing else to do. And so they're out all night long and they don't catch a single fish. And in the morning, they're coming back and they see someone standing on the beach. And the person yells to him, put your nets out on the right-hand side. They put their nets out. They catch 153 fish. These fish are so big that it's ready to break the nets, but they haul them in. And Peter realizes who this is. Peter realizes that this is Jesus. And so he jumps out of the boat into the water and he swims to shore. The Bible says he threw himself into the sea when he realized that it was Jesus. By the time he gets to the shore, he's cold and he's wet. And Jesus is there and there's a fire going. And Jesus has fish that are being cooked. And he has bread that is ready to eat. And he tells Peter, come and have breakfast with me. Can you imagine that? Come and have breakfast with me. Jesus didn't have to do that, right? There was no reason for Jesus to start a fire, to have fish, to have bread, and to welcome him back. He only did it for no other reason than to show Peter his forgiveness. 
to show him his comfort, to reaffirm his love for Peter. But can you imagine how he felt? Can you imagine just how Peter felt after this? After letting Jesus down, after letting himself down, after a long, cold night with no fish, and then coming in and have Jesus making you a hot breakfast over an open fire, welcoming you back with his love. We are to do the same. Arrow number five. Forgiveness is obedience to God because of Christ. Verse 9 says, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. See, forgiving, comforting, reaffirming our love is not an option. To deny any of these is to disobey God. It is a sin. Colossians 3.13 says this, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's the command. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Let's look at the context of that, because we're probably familiar with its understanding. But we have an overhead, and this is Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. He says this. He says this. All right. <laughs> I think we have technical difficulties. So listen up, listen close, read your Bibles, Colossians uh, 3, 12 through 15. Uh, he says this. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on this. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all, he's put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Does this context sound like cold, heartless, loveless obedience? I have to forgive because God says I forgive? No, the whole thing is wrapped in love, right? Kindness, humility, uh, love binds everything together in perfect harmony. You're one body, right? This, this is obedience from the heart. It's obedience with love. It's obedience with the peace that Christ gives us. It's not forgiving on the, you know, on the outside with anger on the inside. It's forgiving from the heart. It's forgiving inside. It's forgiving love. And we do this because Christ has forgiven us. Arrow number six says this. We need to forgive each other so that we will not be outwitted by Satan. That's one of the reasons that Paul gives for this, is that we're not outwitted by Satan. See, Satan wants to see churches that are full of people who won't forgive, that are full of people who hold grudges, who are filled, or churches that are filled with people who are filled with anger as well. But we're one body, and not forgiving uh, will tear down the body, Right? We know that not forgiving tears down friendships, tears down families. It will tear down the church as well. And Satan knows that if we don't forgive, we are disobeying God. And he wants nothing more than to see a church full of people disobeying God. Verse 11 says we shouldn't be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So when I read that, the natural question is, right, because it says we will, we what is it? For we are not ignorant of his designs. The question always is, well, what are his designs? What, 
What is he talking about right here? In other words, what are the things that prevent us from forgiving others? Because this is in that context, right, of forgiving others. And he's talking about his design. So what are some of the reasons? What are some of these reasons that we don't forgive others? Um, because if we don't forgive others, right, we're disobeying against God. If we don't forget others, we are implementing Satan's plan and devices against God and against the church. You know, sometimes these, these reasons for not forgiving other people, and let me just stop right here, actually, just to make sure that we're, that we're talking about the same thing. So because I keep talking about us like we're, you know, full of hatred and, you know, full of this, you know, shunning everybody in sight and stuff like that. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying this passage is warning against this. And we just want to make sure that I'm not portraying us that we aren't. But, you know... This isn't in the Bible if we don't have the tendency to do that. So maybe we're not, you know, doing it that, ex- that extentful. But there's these tendencies that are there. And there's devices by Satan to get us to do that. And that's just what this teaching is about. So some of those devices are, they can just be simple things. One is, we just don't know what to say. Right? We know that this person has sinned. We know that something has happened. But they've confessed and they've repented and they've come back. And sometimes... We just don't know what to say, right? It's like that elephant is in the room. And we just kind of ignore because we don't know what it is that we're supposed to say. So we just don't say anything. We just don't talk. Sometimes it's because we're afraid of them. Sometimes, honestly, we're afraid of people. And we're afraid of their sin. And so we just, we just don't do anything. But how many times does God say, do not fear? I am with you always. What can man do to you, right? We're talking about someone who has confessed their sins, who has repented, who wants restoration. And we need to forgive them. We need to bridge that gap. We need to forgive them. We need to comfort them. We need to love them, not to fear them. Sometimes we think that their sins are too great to be forgiven. But they didn't change. The repentance isn't true. It's too big of a sin. And so we limit how much God can forgive other people. We put that limit on there. God doesn't. John MacArthur says this, Paul knew there was and there is no place in the church for man-made limits on God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness towards repentant sinners. Such restrictions could only rob the fellowship of the joy of unity. It was time to grant forgiveness so that this man's joy might be restored. Sometimes these reasons, however, are more personal than that. They're much closer to home. We've been burned by them before. They've done this before. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And so we back down. We shy away. We don't want this to happen again. But what does Jesus say when the man asked him about forgiving his brother? He said, how many times do I have to forgive him? How many times do I have to forgive this guy? Seven times? Is that enough? Is seven times enough? Jesus says, no. Seven times 70. Wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be better to obey Jesus and get burned again than to disobey him? Sometimes we're filled with anger. Sometimes we get consumed with anger and this desire for this revenge that takes place. We're hurt so bad that we don't trust him anymore. We don't trust God anymore. 
We become like the man in the parable. And so this is what I'm saying. Don't become like this man in the parable, right? There was a guy who owed like millions of dollars, and this king's going to settle his accounts, and the guy can't pay. And he gives him the money for free. He lets him off. He lets him go free. The guy goes out after owing like millions. He finds a guy who owns like $100. The Bible says he grabbed him and started choking him. He started choking him for $100. He just got forgiven a million dollars. He's choking the guy for $100, and he throws him in prison. And... We don't want to be like that at all, right? And this anger and this revenge will consume you. So this guy's anger and revenge consumes us over $100 when he's got a million. He can't even think straight. And that's what happens. That, that fire is just never satisfied. But forgiveness, comfort, and love are weapons against that. Ephesians 4 says this, Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ in God forgave you. We need to ask God to help us here. We need to ask God for the Holy Spirit. We need to ask God for his love so that we can extend this love and this compassion towards them. These are all devices of Satan. Any reason for not forgiving is the wrong reason. Any reason for not forgiving is a device of Satan. Any reason for not forgiving is a victory that goes to Satan. Because God tells us to forgive as Christ forgave. The last error, which isn't found in this particular passage, but is found uh, in the account of Peter, is that forgiveness means a restoration to spiritual work. We often think that someone who has sinned and has repented, sometimes we look at them and we think that they're no longer worthy of God's work or to work side by side of us. But this isn't the case at all. Because if that was the case, then Christ's forgiveness wouldn't be complete. Our forgiveness wouldn't be complete. One of the last things that we notice in the story about Peter is that Christ restored him to do good. Right? When he originally talks to him before and he's telling him that you're going to deny me three times, he then says, when you have turned again, when you've come back, when you've repented, strengthen the brothers. That was his command. After sin, after repentance, after forgiveness, strengthen the brothers. And so on that beach that morning, Jesus takes Peter's side and he tells him three times, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And so there's much stuff for Peter to do. And we see Peter in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, preaches this sermon, 3,000 people become saved in one single day. Peter is restored to doing Christian work. And our forgiveness, our comfort, and our love must be so complete that we take them with so that we do spiritual work together as well. So those are the seven arrows. And what I want to do is just kind of summarize them all in a story from 1985. Thank you. <laughs> And I want to summarize this from this story because I think this story just shows what this looks like. So again, it seems like it's kind of a heavy message. I didn't mean it, mean it to be too heavy, but we have to look at this stuff, right? Because we're going to have people who are sin, and we need to know what to do. And so here's the story. This is a friend of mine in college told me this story. So he went to this church and had two sets of cousins. One of the sets of the cousins had two kids, and one of them was a high school girl. The other one had three kids, and one of them was going to college at the time. This high school girl started dating this boy. And he was wilder than what anybody really thought she should be dating, but she continued to date him. And she ended up becoming pregnant 
by this guy. Once this guy found out that she was pregnant, he was gone. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with the baby. You know, whatever you want to do is fine with me, but I'm out of the picture. And he leaves, and that's it. And so she ends up pregnant on her own. The church is tight. The family is tight. And they didn't take it well. Many of the people backed off. Many of the people didn't talk to her. She had embarrassed her family. She had embarrassed the church. How could this young Christian girl do what she did? Now, maybe they didn't talk to her because they didn't know what to say. What do you, what do you say to a, a Christian high school girl who's pregnant? Or maybe they thought that her sin was too great. Or maybe they were afraid of her, afraid of the influence that she would now have on their children. We don't know what the reason was, but we don't know this. She was pregnant. She was unwed. She was a high school student. And now she's feeling ashamed, and she's feeling guilty, and she's feeling alone. But I can tell you this, she definitely repented of her sins. She definitely asked God for a clean heart and for a new spirit to be renewed in her. I don't know whether she asked God for the joy of her salvation. I don't know if she was brave enough to ask God for joy after that. But I do know this, she repented of her sins. She asked for forgiveness, and Christ forgave her. So while all this was happening, the other cousin wasn't home. And he came home. And the first time he saw her was at church on a Sunday morning. And so he sees her, and he gives her this great big smile. And he rushes over to her, and he grabs her, and he hugs her, and he holds her. And he said, I just want you to know how much I love you. He just held her. And in front of everybody, he said, I just want you to know how much I love you. And so in front of everybody, he forgives her. In front of everybody, he comforts her. In front of everybody, he reaffirms his love for this girl. And because of this public display of Christ's affection, it melted everyone's heart. And they saw what they were doing. And they saw what forgiveness looked like. And they rallied around this girl. And they too forgave her. And they too comforted her. And they too reaffirmed their love for her. And you know what? She took that baby and she raised it as a single parent in that church. And she stayed in that church. And I'm convinced that if it wasn't for that cousin doing these things in front of everybody, that she would have never stayed in that church. I'm convinced that she would have left that church never to come back and probably never to come back to any other church as well. But she didn't leave. And that church comforted her, reaffirmed their love. They forgave her for what she did. Can you imagine the impact? Just imagine the impact on someone. If instead of holding their sin against them, you forgive them. Instead of shunning them, you comfort them. Instead of turning your back to them, you turn their hearts to them. Can you imagine if we as a church, as King of Grace is known for this, if this is who we are, right? If we forgave people as Christ forgave people, if we comforted people the way Christ comforts, if we reaffirm our love the way that Christ reaffirms our love, just picture what that is. Because this is what we're called to do. People will sin. 
The band can come up. People will sin. People will repent. And people will need restoration. And this is what we do as Christians. So don't look for perfection in other people. Look to extend forgiveness from yourself. Forgive them. Comfort them. Reaffirm your love for them. Father God, we come before you now. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that you will help us to be this kind of a people, Lord. So last week we looked at our own sin and we realized how much like David we can be. And we realized what it was for you to forgive David and for you to give him that joy, to give him that, uh, that joy of his salvation, to give him a clean heart, Lord. And now we look at you doing this to other people who have sinned, Lord. And I just pray that you will help us, Lord, just to comfort them, to love them, to forgive them, Lord, so that we too might be part of your work, Lord. You forgive and you comfort, Lord. And you're asking us to forgive and to comfort, Lord. You're asking us to do your work in forgiveness. Lord, the whole gospel, the whole gospel, the whole reason why we're here is one thing. You forgive our sins. So, Lord, let us forgive other people's sins as well, Lord. Let us be a church that forgives sins. Let us be a people that forgive sins. Let us just, uh, just be known for this. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you'll be with us, Lord. In your precious, in your holy name I pray, amen.